Hi, my name is Lydia. And I'm Emma. And we're the hosts of Holy Ship. We are passionate about creating a space for women to talk about sexuality, their bodies, and all things relationships. We think that for so long, Christian spheres have often failed to address these topics with women in a healthy, shame-free, and open way. So welcome to Holy Ship, where we address all the taboo topics in a way that is honoring to you, your relationships, and God. Welcome back, everyone, to the Holy Ship podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us to listen to a new episode. Today, we have Dr. Bacheva Marcus, who is a certified sex therapist therapist, (laughs) and author of Sex Points and clinical director of May's Sexual Health. Uh, She's going to be talking with us today all about uh, sexual health, and we look forward to our discussion with her. So without further ado, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for getting my name pronounced right. Nobody says Bacheva correctly. I'm so impressed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a tongue twister with that. And then all of the, <laughs> the <name>. titles <laughs> that you have getting a little tongue tied yep. there. <laughs> But we're so happy to have you and um, thrilled that you agreed to be on. So before we kind of go more in depth in conversation here, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into sex therapy? So I, let me back up a lot for this particular subject. I grew up in a religious Orthodox Jewish household which, you know, especially for people who grew up in any kind of sort of religious households will understand how little sex education actually occurs in that situation and how sort of biased and kind of odd that sex education can be and how unhelpful. So um, I was no different than anybody else. And I have very funny stories about that. But as I got older, I went into this field kind of on a circuitous route. I, I, I was doing, I was working about for profits for a while and then started working with a urologist and went back and got, we opened May's Women's Sexual Health. I, I was a social worker. I should say that I was a social worker with a, I have a master's in social work um, and, um, and a master's in Jewish studies. And then I when we decided to open the center, I went back and got specialized training and did a master's in public health and ultimately did a master a PhD in human sexuality. We opened the center and this is really the crux of what I do. This is why I think sexual health is so misunderstood, but so important is that usually when people are having sexual issues, they assume something's going on in their head, right? They have a problem. They'll go see a ther- sex therapist, which I am of which I am, but in so many cases, there's physiological pieces going on as well. And what happens when you just talk to a therapist is often you end up kind of blaming yourself. Like you're not working at it hard enough. You're not, I'll just give you an example. If like you feel like your desire drops after you get on birth control pills, for example, and then you start feeling, well, maybe it's the relationship or maybe I just need to slow down more. Or somebody tells you you have to do more deep breathing or you have to get more in touch with yourself. So those things are really important. But if your hormones are messed up because of the birth control pills, you could do that from today until, you know, three weeks from Wednesday and still it won't help you, but you'll end up blaming yourself. Like you're not doing that stuff enough, you know? So, um, so what May's sexual health does is it, we have medical professionals who work with us, um, doctors and nurse practitioners and therapists on the team. And so when anybody comes in a man or woman, there's a men's center and a women's center, when anybody comes in, they have conversations or they have an intake with both the therapist and the medical person. And we work together 
with all the whole person, with the entire person. And um, it has been incredibly successful, but it's very, it's really rare. Like most places you either go to a doctor who tosses meds at you, or you go to a therapist who talks to you. And so the idea of being able to merge those two things is not, you don't see it really very much. And so we have our center, which is in New York in a few locations. Um, but I wrote the book sex points because I realized how much information was lacking for women. And that has to do with pain. Cause I I'm sure. And you're the two of you are young, you know, so pain and you get pain at different stages in your life, but it's particularly disruptive when it's early on in your sexual relationship, because you don't know what to make of it and you feel lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so pain has parts of it that are really physical and then parts that you have to deal with because it can have a real significant impact on your relationship and your mm-hmm. sense of yourself. Um, problems with desire, like not wanting sex or not wanting sex at different times and understanding how much our medications, our birth control, our hormones affect that as well as our relationship. Problems with arousal, like not getting turned on and not being able to access that like tingly feeling, getting that laundry list to stop in your head so that you can actually pay attention to the sex you're trying to have and orgasm issues. So all of those are super complicated and super accessible, except women have to be empowered to be able to know, have the information and be able to deal with it. And so that's what makes, that's what makes my engine run, right? Being able to teach women, here are all the components. Now, now take it. And, And when I wrote the book, Sex Points, the idea was like, I'm handing you the information so that you can now take it. If you need to see a doctor, you can see a doctor as an educated person. And some of this stuff you can just do on your own. So that was a very, very long answer to a very short question. And I apologize. No, that's so good. And I really love what Maze does and how it like really addresses multiple aspects of like health and sexuality. So that's really cool. Just to start off, can you tell us a little bit more about like the science and chemicals involved in orgasm? Yes. Um, so what's happening when you have an orgasm, one of the first questions that people will often say to me is, um, I don't know if I've ever had an orgasm. So for most women, you'll know it if you have one. That's usually my answer. That's not 100% true. And we'll talk about the exceptions to that. For most women, an orgasm is a discrete thing that happens. And it's so hard to describe. For those of you who like are listening, who have had one or haven't had one, it's very, but I'd like to talk about it a little bit like a sneeze right? It's something that almost takes over and happens in your body. And so you pretty much do know when you've had an orgasm, usually not always. And we'll talk about that exception. Now, what's happening is that you're getting a lot of neurological stimulation in your body when you have an orgasm, like you are, as you get turned on, as you get aroused, there are nerve endings that are running throughout your body. And the ones in your clitoris primarily, but your vulva, vagina, and your clitoris, and we'll talk about nerve endings on those things as well. Um, those they're just getting overrun by simulation. You're getting more and more and more stimulation. Now blood is flowing into the area and that's sort of makes what makes you feel engorged. Blood is coming into the area, but what's creating that, um, that heightened sexual feeling is the nerve endings. And when there's too much stimulus in the nerve endings, they shoot off. That's what happens when you have an orgasm, right? You want to get the nerves to the point where like, there's too much input and they just, they need to like blast off is just right now people experience that, you know, ejection of nerve endings 
very differently. Like some people will feel something that feels like a mini explosion. And some people will feel just like waves of something coming over them. Like people describe their orgasmic experience extremely differently. But for most people, it's something that happens. So like I'll have women and especially women who grew up in like very religious homes. Like I sometimes will get women who really never, ever talked about sex. We're not exposed to television. Like we're very, um, you know, very, um, um, sheltered in a way from popular culture and popular media. And so they don't necessarily haven't seen somebody have an orgasm, although we can talk about what they look like on the movies and how not real that is. Um, so they'll think they had an orgasm, but then as I start to talk about it, they're really describing just arousal, like they're getting turned on. So getting turned on is in a, usually in a, like, um, it happens either gradually or suddenly, but it's not a distinct um, it's not a distinct action that happens or a distinct motion that takes over your body, which is why I like to use the idea of a sneeze. You know, that feeling like just before you're about to sneeze and you're about to sneeze and you're about to sneeze and you're about to sneeze. Sometimes you don't sneeze, but then you sneeze. And then what happens when you orgasm is that the neurological stimulus is now overrun. It, you shoot out, you know, it sort of shoots out this sort of neurological overstimulation. And then your body goes back to the resolution prior to the orgasm, right? That's what's happening in your body. Now, for some people, they don't actually feel the orgasm. And, you know, when a woman will say to me, well, I don't know if I'm having orgasms or not. I get really, really, really turned on. I often ask the following question. Why, why do you stop? Like, why do you stop stimulating yourself either with your own hand or a vibrator or your partner's mouth or your partner's hand? Like, so if they say, well, I know when it's over, like it's over, like it's something finished. So they probably are having what I call subclinical orgasms. They're not frustrated, right? They've gotten the stimulation in there and somehow the stimulation shot off, just not in the same way that somebody might feel it very intensely. So the orgasm is over and they've had an orgasm. But if somebody says to me, I stopped because just nothing's happening. I'm really, 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 really turned on. And I still feel that way. And it's frustrating then they haven't actually usually had an orgasm. And that's kind of the way to tell. Do you have questions about that before I keep yammering on and on and on? No, I'm like just taking in all this information. I love it. No, yeah. And I especially like the part about um, how, yeah, what's portrayed in media is not exactly what happens. And I just, I like to emphasize that um, because it's kind of been something that we've talked about in like seasons prior to, but that's an interesting point. Yeah. So let me um, actually get very, very specific about that in a few things. Okay. So all, please do. Okay. So first of all, um, let me just talk about a little bit where those nerve endings are. Cause I think that'll be very helpful to people. So on average, not completely, but on average, any given woman has about 2000 nerve endings in her vagina, 2000 nerve endings in her vulva, and 8,000 nerve endings in that little tiny clitoris. Now, you should know the clitoris actually isn't so tiny. What you see on the outside is just the nub is a little piece of it. And then there's sort of legs or crura that go inside the body. So, but the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings, whereas the vulva and the vagina each have about 2,000. And the first piece of information that that should give aha moment to most people is that is why most women do not orgasm from intercourse. Right. Most women do not have an orgasm from a penis in the vagina. It's just not stimulating the right part of their body. Right. The clitoris <laughs> needs to be stimulated in order to produce an orgasm for the most part, not for everybody. There's some women who can have 
you know, stimulation just on their vulvar, just on their vaginas. And some women just need nipple stimulation. Like some women who think their way to orgasm, although that's a very, very small percentage of women. Um, so most women actually 70%, seven out of 10 women need to have some kind of stimulation of their clitoris in order to have an orgasm. And now that you understand where the nerve endings are, it makes total sense. Now, when you watch the movies, everybody's having orgasms from a penis in the vagina, everybody all the time. It is so aggravating to me. It makes me want to scream because I say this, other sex therapists say this, it's in women's magazines all the time, that only 30% of women, three out of 10 women can have an orgasm from intercourse. And yet, and yet I have a constant stream of women walking through my office saying, something's wrong with me. I can't have an orgasm from intercourse. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard that. Like this mm-hmm. is, I'm not the first one to, to tell you that this is the biggest misconception, right? Yeah, yeah. Is this coming mm-hmm. as a shock to either of you, these numbers? No, not oh, at no. all. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. No, this has been proven time and time again, that, um, there's been expectations set in the world and media on women through these certain mediums. That is just not the reality. And I feel like this kind of plays into like one of our next questions. And that's about how, um, it's normally talked about how like women orgasm far less than men. And like, do you, what are your thoughts on to why that is? Do you think it's from those expectations in the media and, or maybe some more like physiological problems? Well, if, if you think you're supposed to orgasm from penis in the vagina and only 30% of women can, and you don't think to actually say, wait, it's not working for me this way. I got to try a different way. Then only 30% of women are going to have orgasms. So I think that's like so much we've in sort of taken in this idea that we're supposed to have orgasms that way that we don't even ask about doing it a different way. So that's number one. Number two mm-hmm. is I think often women think that the partners, if they're with male partners, they're going to think less of them if they need clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. Like that is like mm-hmm. a little bit my, like I, you know, so I'll tell you a story about a client and I've had this in so many cases, but this is just a great, this is just a great um, way to illustrate it. Woman came in, a young woman, she was probably 22 or 23. And she said to me, I can't have orgasms from intercourse. And I said, okay, you know, welcome to the club. I didn't quite say it that way, but okay. So (laughs) she said, um, she said, well, but my boyfriend told me all his previous girlfriends had orgasms from intercourse. So I started to laugh. I mean, I didn't actually laugh. I just smiled, but I just, um, I said, listen, there's a couple of possibilities here. Either he had an extremely skewed sample. Like it is possible that he dated 10 women and somehow by some bizarre miracle, all 10 of them were ones who could orgasm that way. But that seems highly unlikely. The other possibility is that they were faking it, right? Because we know that women do that because women are afraid that somehow they will be less than if they don't orgasm the way their partner expects them to. And so they've been faking it. So I said, and you could join the club of women who fake it, and then you'll just make it harder for the next girlfriend or whatever. But I need you to understand the statistic that three out of 10 women orgasm from intercourse and 70 to 80% or seven to eight women will orgasm from a hand or a mouth and 95% will orgasm with a vibrator, right? So you need to understand that that is actual information, not what your boyfriend was telling you. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
So we had a whole long conversation and we were, you know, talking about, she orgasmed easily by herself with her hand. It was super easy. And I'm like, use your hand when you're having, anyway, she goes back, she comes in the next time she comes in kind of sheepishly. And she said to me, she said to me, so Bacheva, I had a conversation with him and he said to me, I never said they all orgasmed from intercourse. I said they all orgasm during intercourse. Hmm. Did lots of them use their hands. Okay. So, right. So I think we set up expectations where we sort of hear what we think we want to hear, or we think we should hear. We don't really communicate very well often. um, And we're scared to ask for what we need. You know, if you're somebody who knows you can have an orgasm with a vibrator and you are afraid to ask for that when you're having sex with a partner, that's really a shame because you're jipping yourself from a really fabulous sexual experience. And honestly, you're chipping your partner from getting to know you in a real way, right? Would you want your partner to be faking it? Like, this is what I say to women all the time. Like, would you want your partner to be faking having an orgasm? Because what they really needed was for you to spend an extra two minutes or to use more lubricant with them or whatever it is. You'd want to know that, right? So we need, and if you're with a guy who doesn't want to know that, then jettison the guy, right? Like, you know, like just. And I, I say guys, just because my experience is that women with women do have a much easier time of this. Okay. So, um, you need, there needs to be a few different things. One is to, if we want to stop the pleasure, if we want to close that pleasure gap, you need to get the facts and understand how it works. You need to learn how to make yourself feel good and know your body and be comfortable doing that. And you need to be able to communicate that with your partner. So I don't want to minimize those three things are, they're not all so easy, but they're all doable and they're all in your power to do. So you just got to do it, girl. Yeah. Mm. Does that make sense? Um, oh. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Lydia, do you have a point on this? Cause I'm kind of going to pivot to something else, but I, I want to make no, sure. No, yeah. That- Sorry. You can go. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure I didn't, um, you know, skip a thought there, but I was going to ask you how does context play into orgasms and the sexual experience for a woman? And by context, like I also mean, um, you know, like religious backgrounds and um, I don't know, like trust or certain types of relationships, um, kind of just yeah. like how do con- different contexts play into this experience? So that's such a fascinating question. I'm kind of glad you're asking that um, because it's complicated. I think a mm-hmm. little bit we live with the narrative that um, you need trust, you need calm, you need um, you need a level of intimacy. And that may be true and it may not be as true as we'd like to believe, okay? Because sometimes you'll ask women that, that their hottest sexual experience and it was with somebody they didn't actually trust. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many like older women, older, older than 25 year olds, like older women who are in their mid thirties or forties, I'll, I'll have as clients and they'll say like, I love my partner. He's amazing. He'll do anything I want. But the hottest sex I had was with the biker dude in, you know, when I was 18, who's now in jail, like, okay. I'm so glad I did not marry that person. That would have been hell, but that was the best sex I ever had. So like, we need to ask ourselves a little bit about what that's about. Right. So, um, there is a wonderful book called, um, um, 
oh my God, I can't believe it. The Erotic Mind, which talks about how our erotic minds work, Jack Marin. And he talks about the fact, he, what he calls the erotic equation, which is attraction plus obstacle equals eroticism, right? Like sometimes the obstacles and the obstacles may be feeling nervous, feeling scared. And, and I'm talking to couples who've been married for many years. Like they've married 25 years. They're super comfortable with each other and their sex life is not great for some reason. And I'll make suggestions and they'll be like, but I'll be so uncomfortable doing that. I'm like, uncomfortable is good. Awkward and uncomfortable can be very good. Okay. Now you have to balance that around. I would say to have your first orgasm, you probably need to be relaxed enough to let go. And that doesn't always happen in those kind of environments. But that's why I feel like learning to touch yourself and learning to give yourself an orgasm is really, really important. And I know I'd be actually curious for you guys from a religious standpoint, if that's an issue. I know that when, you know, in Judaism, in the, in the Jewish faith, it's much more of an issue for men than it is for women. Like masturbation and self-touch is just much more complicated. Um, but, and for women, it's sort of not, really talked about so much. And so that kind of gives you a lot of leeway because nobody said it wasn't allowed. Kind of thing. Um, yeah. Right. So, but I do think for women learning to touch yourself and learning to give yourself an orgasm is really such a critical, critical piece because you do need to be able to go turn inward and to relax, to do that. Now, some women are going to feel like they can't relax and have good sex unless they're with somebody who they trust hundred percent. But I don't love assuming everybody has to feel that way because I don't think that's, that's accurate. I think different people get turned on by different things. And the more can we can respect that different people respond differently, the better, the better we'll all be. Now, when you talk about context of religious background, that often has to do with the fact that people have spent years and years and years, not thinking about their bodies, not touching their bodies, not looking at their body. You know, there's, there's a condition called um, vaginismus. Are you at all familiar with it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. So that's a condition where usually the muscles get really tight so that either you can't have intercourse at all, or it's very, very painful. I talk a lot about it in the book. Um, and the reason I talk a lot about it in the book is because it's a classic situation where women feel so bad about themselves and they, they walk around with this dark cloud. Like they, they're just forever and ever and ever feeling like they're broken when it's so treatable, so fixable and so common, like one out of 10 women, one out of 10 women have it in some form, either not terribly, but whatever, but it's the, the, um, the prevalence, the prevalence of it is much higher in religious women of one sort or another Indian women also culturally don't think about their body, don't look at their body, don't touch their bodies, usually start having intercourse later than the average, you know, than the average mm -hmm. bear. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it just makes, it just makes it more likely that those muscles will tighten up. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the context of orgasm, it's the sort of the context of sexuality in general. Can you, can you relax at least by yourself? can you embrace the fact that sexuality is a good thing and God given? Like, I really, I really, I really mean that, you know, I feel like that is really, you know, God wouldn't have given us sex if they, if God didn't want us to like appreciate sex, at least in my opinion, like, otherwise, what was the use of it? Right. It's not just about having babies. Cause you could do that by artificial insemination now. So, um, so, you know, sort of understanding what works for you is the most important context. Does that answer your question, Emma, or not really? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think those, um, 
those statistics that you pulled up is really good for our audience, especially. Mm -hmm. And like, I think, um, different denominations within Christianity, uh, talk about it in different ways. Um, I, I definitely feel like in, um, more evangelical, uh, denominations, it's, um, more shamed and, um, Mm -hmm. I guess deterred, um, and then in, in more um, liturgical, um, traditional denominations, I would say it's just not talked about, um, but not not shamed, just not really expressed at all. So I appreciate that you brought that up. And um, yeah, I would say that different Christians would argue um, it differently. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a really fascinating topic, but personally. Um, and one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because, you know, we believe that education is first and foremost, really important because without, you know, being educated on your body, um, and anatomy, like, how are you going to know to communicate? You know, how are you going to know to work through, um, some of these mental roadblocks and stuff like that? So at least that's the first step. And then, um, you know, the denominations can kind of yeah. come you know, at it in their own way. It's so funny. I always joke around that I did not get in this field. I didn't get into sex therapy or sexual health because I'm so excited by body part a fitting into the slot of body part B. Like that is not that interesting to me. That's fine. Right. I'm happy to talk about that. But what's interesting to me is the, the relationships that get created, the relationship with yourself, when you're feeling whole sexually and the relationship with your partner, when you're feeling like there's a, a, a a physical connection. And I know that in Judaism and I know that in Christianity, family is really important and relationships are really, really important. And almost every religion kind of buys into this idea of monogamy, long-term monogamous relationships. And I think those are complicated and those are difficult. We don't get put, give enough airspace to how difficult and complicated those are. And also mm-hmm. how meaningful and fulfilling those can be in so many ways. But one of the things that makes that work is when you can really communicate sexually, when you have realistic expectations and you can really be together and like be naked together. And I don't just mean physically naked, be emotionally naked with Mm -hmm. the other person. Like that is when you have this person in your life that you can really sort of bear your soul and body to, then that makes for a long-term relationship. And ultimately I think really happier couples, happier families. And that in the end is what I think religion really wants. So I got into this field because of that, you know, and, um, and, and I do feel like sometimes the irony of religion, not being sex positive, even though they, maybe they think they are, but they're not Mm -hmm. is so painful because religion, that should be one of the first things religion talks about. Like I just today gave a class for rabbis, you know, rabbis in training. And I was talking to them about how important it is for them to make themselves accessible to people who are having issues because all of us really do believe in families. And I feel like clergy's in there. Like, it's amazing that you're doing this podcast because in the end, people have to understand that religion can be very important to you and sex can be very important to you. And in the perfect world, those two things would go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a big problem with today is that people can't hold like two ideas in suspension anymore, that you can be a Christian and also appreciate things that might have been um, perverted in different contexts. I'm putting air quotes here because 
you know, different opinions, but um, I think that's a problem that a lot of um, strong evangelicals maybe have a hard idea of like yeah. wrapping around their minds of having those two ideas be held in suspension together. I think that's an excellent point that you bring up, but Lydia, I'll, I'll let you uh, <laughs> say what you're thinking about this here. Yeah, no, that's so good. Um, I think just next, I was wondering if you could, you've kind of touched on this and you kind of touched on this in various parts, but could you explain um, the like arc of sexual pleasure um, and the different components of that and then how it differs between like men and women if it does differ? So that is a, that is a big question. I could speak for an hour on that just so we're clear or two hours on that, but I'll try to do the mini, the mini version of it. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. So Masters and Johnson who did their work, it was like 50 years ago, maybe longer at this point, probably closer to hundred years. Anyway, Masters and Johnson did a lot of research on sex and came up with this um, response cycle. And the way that they built it, it was, you get desire to have sex. Like you have this desire to have sex. Like, you know, like you wake up in the morning, you walk home and you're thinking, oh, I kind of would like to have sex now. You then <laughs> approach your partner. Okay, I know you're laughing, but you're gonna, okay. this, is the, this is the sexual model that almost everybody uses. This is a sexual response model that is considered kind of the gold standard. And I'll tell you what the right. problem with it is, although you're laughing already. So, okay. So you kind of wanna have sex for whatever, you know, you wanna have sex. You then introduce it. So you introduce stimuluses. So like you start kissing your partner or touching your partner or watching oh. something, thinking about something turned on. You get more and more turned on, you have an orgasm, and then hopefully you, your resolution, you go back to where you were before. And then, you know, the next time you want to have sex, the whole thing starts again. That seems to be a better model for men. And that's why I started laughing when you started laughing. And, but that was the model everybody worked with. That was the Masters and Johnson model. And that was the model everybody worked with. It, it seems to be a better model for men, but I would even argue it's a better model for younger people. When your hormones are high enough, you're going to have that sort of spontaneous desire for sex. Or when you're new in a relationship, there's a bunch of situations where that spontaneous desire for sex will pop in. About 10 years ago, um, an OBGYN in, in, in Canada, um, Rosemary Bassan, suggested a new model for women, which seems much, much it resonates much better with women. Okay. And her model goes like this, and then you'll tell me what you think. Okay. Her model says, well, that doesn't really describe most women's experience. Most women will decide for some reason that they want to have sex. They'll decide they want to have sex because they want to connect with their partner because it's been a while since they had sex because sex makes them feel good because the orgasm makes them feel good because it makes them feel relaxed for whatever reason, they'll make the cognitive decision. They want to have sex. They will introduce the stimuluses before there's any desire there, right? So they'll start thinking about something sexy, thinking about their partner, thinking about the last time they had sex, kissing their partner, touching their partner, doing all the things that turn them on. They will then become turned on and the turned on is gonna make them want to have sex. So now the desire has jumped in secondary to what I would call the arousal, right? So mm -hmm. they've introduced it, they've made the decision, they've introduced the stimuluses, they've gotten turned on and aroused, they then want sex. And then they introduce more stimuluses, more desire, more arousal, more desire until they have an orgasm. And then assuming they get what they originally wanted, whatever it was, they were relaxed, they feel closer to the partner, they had fun, whatever it was, they were bored, you know, like whatever it was that they originally were thinking about, if that 
sort of responded to that need, then they're willing to start that cycle again. Mm -hmm. And that really describes for most women, I think what sex looks like. You're very young, your hormones are incredibly high. You may just sort of wake up and want sex, you know, or you'd be walking down the street and thinking about sex. You may be in, new in a relationship where everything is amazing and perfect. And again, your hormones are flying high early in a relationship. You may be like, I cannot wait to get home and get the other person's clothes off. But for the most people, it has to be this sort of either the other person comes to you and then you can access that desire because you're starting to put those stimuluses in to get turned on or you make a decision and you can just do it. And so when I sort of rank, I have this outlined in the book and this is how I work with my patients when they come in, when they talk about low desire, I rank them. If they say they spontaneously want to have sex, they're a one. And there are plenty of women like that. They tend to be younger, early in relationships. If they say, well, I can get in the mood very quickly. I don't spontaneously want to have sex, but when my partner comes to me and gets started, or I make a decision, we haven't had sex in a while and I think it'll be great to have sex. I can get myself there. That's a two. And that's a perfectly great place for women to be at. A three is when they're kind of avoidant. Like they want to stay in the shower or they want to stay on the computer. They try not to, they just, they're trying to avoid their partner. And a four is aversive. Like we haven't had sex in three weeks or a month. And I, I'm, I love this person, but I just cannot drag myself to have sex with this person. So that's the, so I think I sort of described to you what the response cycle looks like, Lydia, tell me if that answered your question. And I think that that's pretty typical of most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I didn't even know like the two differing models there. So that was very intriguing. I think another question that I have, I've read the book, Come As You Are, um, which was like so great. And I feel like described a lot of what you just talked about, but in it, it was talking about how like after like sex, there's like a, I think it's called a refractory period. Mm -hmm. Um, and how like women's tends to be like shorter or like they can orgasm, like right after the bat, whereas men, like it's like either longer or normally longer. Right. So Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, is a great book. It sort of describes it a lot. I do quibble with her a little bit because she's definitely one of these people who say, you know, you have to be relaxed. You have to be calm. Mm -hmm. You have to be right. And I'm not sure that's hundred percent true, but, um, but the ref- in terms of the refractory period, there are women who can have multiple orgasms, one right after the other. Men, it takes a while for the blood to flow to come back into the penis. Again, if you've got an 18-year-old boy, he's much more likely to be able to ejaculate and then ejaculate again five minutes later and ejaculate five minutes later. You find me a 40-year-old man or a 50-year-old man, <laughs> no way in hell. Like that is not <laughs> happening, right? But women, it doesn't change. The refractory mm-hmm. period does not change. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some women who have one orgasm, they feel done. I will say for some women who have orgasms, women will say, oh, I never tried to have a second one because I feel so hypersensitive right afterwards. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say is if you want to try to have a second one, just give yourself a minute or two or three and then start with a little lower level of stimulation and see if you can build it up again. But everybody's going to find what works really well for them. I definitely know women who like to have multiple orgasms and don't feel satisfied unless they've had a few. And some women who have like one orgasm and they are good to go. So, um, you know, this is again, one of those examples where like everybody is so different and kind of learning what works for you is really critical and key. Hmm. Ah, so interesting. If you don't mind just like telling us like some of your best advice or resources that you would have women read or watch or listen to. Yeah. So I think, um, I think 
I think Emily Nagoski's book, which you mentioned is excellent. And I highly recommend that book if you're just getting started. Um, I happen to love the guide to getting it on. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, it's a little bit out there. Like it's not for the faint of heart. I'll just put that right there. Like, um, you know, they use a lot of street language, but, but it is a great, it's probably the best book I know on sex as an introduction to sex. It's thick. I was laughing. I, Joe Anides wrote the book. It kept getting thicker and thicker and thicker. And finally his publisher said, you cannot do this anymore. So it's, I call it the Bible of sex ed. Like it has everything you want, you could possibly want to know. And it's written in these like bite-sized pieces, almost written like with cartoons and short like vignettes. So it's really easy to access. And it talks about all the things that people need to know. So I'm a very, very big fan of um, the guide to getting it on. I think my book is extremely helpful if you're struggling at all with any problem. Like it's just the kind of book you might want to have on your shelf because if you're having pain, my book's a great place to start. If you're having problems with orgasm, if you're interested in getting a vibrator for the first time, we could spend a whole time talking about that. Um, that's what I did my PhD dissertation on was vibrator use in women. Um, if you're, if your fantasies, which is a huge piece of your sex life, if that's something you're struggling with. So for, if you feel like you're struggling with any one thing, honestly, I feel like my book can be an amazing resource. I do try on social media. So I'm going to say a little plug for following me on social media, especially on TikTok, although I do it on Instagram as well. I try very hard to answer people's questions. So I try to, I spend a lot of time with basic fundamental sex advice. And the only reason I'm saying TikTok, I love Instagram and Instagram is very personal. Like I get back and forth. I've made all these relationships. It's really fun. But TikTok is just informational, getting information out to people. Whereas Instagram is a lot more personal stuff. Like it's just a connecting vehicle, I think. So, um, so I try really, really hard to give information and I never know kind of what's going to go crazy on viral on, on, um, on TikTok. Like I, I, I did something about having a sex towel. Like you need a sex towel. Sex could be very messy. And if you have a towel that you keep under you, when you have sex, it just makes you relax. You don't worry about your squirting, his squirting, dripping, whatever. Anyway, it went, people went nuts with that. I just also did a one that also seemed to go viral. I can never figure out what is going to hit people, but it's super helpful for me to know that um, about people who learn to have orgasms on their stomach and how common that is and how everybody who does that feels like they're at, you know, they're like aberrant, but it's very common. So um, I think following, um, you know, on TikTok, I'm under the Dr. Bacheva because I got thrown off as Dr. Bacheva. I must have used the word penis or something and they didn't like it. Um, <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Dr. Bacheva. Um, but I, I, I feel like th- those are sort of useful ways to kind of get started if you're a woman and you're interested in finding your sexuality. The other thing I will also throw out there is that May Sexual Health, where I'm the director, we have built a website with so much information there. And if you're having pain, we have like a forum where people chat with each other about it. There's so much information on May's Women's Health. So all the way from you're just getting started to your menopausal. Um, And so I think those are great resources for people. All right. Thank you everyone for listening to our episode with Batcheva. We were so excited to get to talk with her um, about sexual health and orgasms. And we really appreciate your listening and support as always. Feel free to DM us on Instagram at theholyship.podcast or send us an email at theholyship.podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you 
and seeing your likes and comments. And until next time, bye friends.